I woke up this morning and realized that today is a big day in church history, which I did not know previous to this morning. Today is the day that George Whitfield died, September 30th, a long way away, a long way back. And uh, so I'm humbled to preach on the day that uh, up, uh, on the day that he died, a man who was uh, one of the greatest preachers America has ever known. And I was reading this morning, he could speak to 30,000 and every single person could hear him. And he didn't have the aid of speakers and things of this nature. God had given him a great gift and certainly was part of a uh, revival at that time in America and something that we hope for today. And I'm grateful for your graciousness and sticking with a young man learning, trying to learn how to preach. I don't have the aspirations to be a George Witchfield, but you're very gracious to sit there and, and let me uh, learn and practice and all of these different things. As I was studying the passage, go with me to Psalm 119. I think it often happens probably to anybody who's preparing to preach or teach. You wonder, now how am I supposed to, to preach on something that I don't have down in my own life? That seems awfully hypocritical. I stand up and I'm supposed to say all these things passionately, etc., etc., and yet I'm looking in my own life and going, boy, I'm really falling short on some of these things. But that's where I'm grateful for the gospel because it's not my words that are going out. It is by God's grace, His words, the word of truth, and it's doing in me what I'm praying that it's doing in you as well, conforming us to the image of His Son. We have Psalm 119. This is where we're uh, once again turning, preaching verse by verse through this passage of Scripture. And we're to another passage, another section of eight verses here, 57 through 64. So if you would please stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word, we will once again read this passage and then go and see what he might, what God might teach us. Psalm 119, 57 through 64. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. Please be seated. Psalm 119 can be looked at in many different ways, and we're going to take a look at it in many different ways. Probably the way that most look at it is it's an entire passage, the longest passage in Scripture, devoted to God's Word, devoted to the study of God's Word, devoted to the importance of God's Word. But I think even deeper than that, this entire passage is really a, an opportunity to be inside the secret prayer closet of a man who is wrestling with much of what we wrestle with and is pouring out his heart to God. And he, we're, going, we're seeing his emotions as it goes up and down, up and down, as he pours out his hearts to God, asking God, would you search me? Would you teach me? And then he goes to praise, and then he goes to thanksgiving. And then you wonder, man, he seems to be in kind of a discouraging, depressionistic funk. And then he comes back up, and then he goes back down. So we're really just kind of a fly on the wall here and seeing a man who is pursuing God, and he's struggling with life and how his walk with the Lord applies to real life. And I think we're going to see this exceptionally today. Now, let's just take a look, quick look here 
And so I can kind of give you a little bit of a layout of what we're going to go through here. 57 and 58 really set up this entire passage. And this is one of the first times this has happened in our section here. Normally what happens is you have in the first of eight verses, it kind of builds to a culmination at the end. And I really think 57 and 58 are probably the passages that we're going to get the most out of this morning. But then once he claims this promise, especially in 57, in 59, 60, and 61, he goes through some, um, some testing of that proclamation. You see that in 62 as well. In 63, he begins to pull out with this solution. In 64, he ends in an exaltation of praise. So let's start with 57. Now I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, which says, The Lord is my portion. I really like the King James Version in this one better. It says, Thou art my portion, O Lord. There's different portions of Scripture where you can go to a passage there and you see where the person that's writing is claiming God is his portion. Or another word would be God is his inheritance. But there's very few times where you see, as you see in this passage, where God, where this person is before the face of God and he's telling to God's face, you are my portion. He's not telling somebody else. Other passages of scripture you see somebody saying, hey, you know, God is my portion. This time he's saying to God's face, you are my portion. Now we can see in scripture that really... This would kind of be like uh, the Levites. When the 12 tribes of Israel got their division of land, the Levites didn't get any land. They got God as their portion. And that's what we have. We have God as our portion. We have Jesus Christ as our portion. And it's an intimate prayer to the face of God. It's not something that we just can say. Now, we, we, what is a portion? I think in, normally when we think of a portion, I think of a portion of pie, a slice. And the portions may be bigger or smaller, depending upon how old you are or how hungry you are or whatever it be. I may get a good-sized portion. My son might get a smaller-sized portion. But I think we're missing the point when we're thinking about it in that way. Because we don't get a slice of God. We don't get a piece of Him. And then maybe we miss out. and Somebody over here has a, maybe a bigger portion or a bigger slice, or different aspects of God, every single one of us, as a child of the King, have all of God. Every aspect, all His power, we have direct access to the throne because we're not our own anymore. We've been adopted. This is the beauty of the gospel. We've been adopted by God into His family, and we have Him all. We can cry out, Abba, Father. Now that has got to settle deep within our hearts. Because unless we realize that, the rest of this passage, 58 through 64, is going to make no sense. Unless you see God as completely satisfactory to every aspect of your life, the rest is going to make no sense. If you think material possessions, friends, education, hobbies, passions, wife, children, Husband, if you see anything else as additive to God, you've missed the point. There is nothing else that you need other than, other than all of God. And you've got him all. There is nothing else that can contribute to your happiness. So the question is, and the psalmist will answer this here in a minute, why aren't we always that happy? Well, it's because we don't see the fact that God is our entire portion. We don't see him as everything that we need. We see him as, 
well, he's pretty good, and sometimes I need bigger or smaller slices of him than, than at other times. We don't see him as answers to everything. Thomas Brooks, a great Puritan writer. I'm going to throw some things on screen. Christopher, are we up on screen there? I'm going to throw something up on screen here. This is a, a pretty long quote I actually read this week that a preacher should never lose quotes because it makes me lose eye content. But this one's really good. So I'm going to break the rules. This is a quote by Thomas Brooks. It's long. I'm going to go through three different screens here to get it. But this is what he says about God being our portion. Thou art my portion, O Lord. Luther counsels every Christian to answer all temptations with this short saying. Christian, I'm skipping some things here. Christian, some, I am a Christian. I would counsel every Christian to answer all temptations with this short saying, the Lord is my portion. So what he's saying is, you're going to be tempted in your life. You're going to be tempted by the uh, lust. You're going to be tempted by greed. You're going to be tempted by all these different things. What are you going to say? The Lord is my portion. O Christian, when Satan or the world shall tempt thee with honors, answer, the Lord is my portion. When they shall tempt thee with riches... Answer, the Lord is my portion. When they shall tempt thee with preferments, answer, the Lord is my portion. And when they shall tempt thee with the favors of great ones, answer, the Lord is my portion. We saw this this morning with, uh, with Joseph, that he had a lot of different opportunities, a lot of temptations, different tests and afflictions, and he answered, the Lord is my portion. They're picking up at the, end, the beginning there. And when they shall tempt thee with the favors of the great ones, answer, the Lord is my portion. Yea, and when this persecuting world shall threaten thee with the loss of thy estate, answer, the Lord is my portion. And when they shall threaten thee with the loss of thy liberty, answer, the Lord is my portion. And when they shall threaten thee with the loss of friends, answer, the Lord is my portion. And when they shall threaten thee with the loss of life, answer, the Lord is my portion. O oh, sir, if Satan should come to thee with an apple as he once did to Eve... Tell him that the Lord is your portion. Or with a grape, as once he did to Noah, tell him that the Lord is your portion. Or with a change of raiment, as he once did to Gehazi, tell him that the Lord is your portion. Or with a wedge of gold, as he once did to Achan, tell him that the Lord is your portion. Or with a bag of money, as he once did to Judas, tell him that the Lord is your portion. Or with a crown, a kingdom, as he once did to Moses, tell him that the Lord is your portion. Thomas Brooks. Pretty good. We often are tempted to look outside of who God is in his entirety in Scripture and thinking there's something outside of God that's going to make me that more happy or that more satisfied. No, the Lord is your portion. You do not need anything else. He is all that we need. He is all satisfying to us. Now, how will we respond if that's the case? Well, you're going to have a proof of whether or not he's your portion by what you do with what he says in Scripture. You see that second half of 57. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. We can say, and the world does say, I believe in God. He is everything to me. But you see a disparity between what they say and what they do. And so they ask, you're judging me. You can't do that. You can't judge me. By what I do? Oh, according to Scripture, the proof of whether or not God is your portion is what you do with His words. Do you carry them out? Do you fill them out? 58, I entreat your favor with all my heart. If God is our incomplete portion, if we see Him as everything, then we're going to come to Him with everything, with all of our heart, pleading with Him for His graciousness to me according to your promise there in 58. 
Now, his promises are enough. And we can go through Scripture. We could spend the rest of our time here all day going through the promises of Scripture. But oftentimes, we're looking outside of Scripture for a promise, thinking there's got to be one more. Maybe some new guy wrote a book that would help me to uh, get in an extra promise. Maybe there's something that I need to find that's going to give me encouragement. The only thing you need is the Word of God. That's the only thing that you can have that's truly going to be, um, that the promise, where the promises are truly going to be fulfilled. There might be a lot of man promises. Joel Olstein just came out with a book. I believe just essentially some self-motivating theology that's devoid of the gospel that you just claim all these things and you'll be it. And there's some good promises that you can claim. But what happens when the situations don't fit the promises that you're trying to claim? Well, if they're man promises, they'll fall apart. If they're God's promises, they will always come true. Now, he's made this, this psalmist has made the declaration. We're down to verse 59. And he's got a desire to have the Lord as his portion. But he has a little bit of a problem. And we're going to see this in 59, 60, 61, and 62. Now look, when I think on my ways, 59, I turn my feet to your testimonies. And I think we could preach an entire sermon on just that verse alone. Now what does Mr. Welch say all the time? Act your way into feeling, don't feel your way into acting. But there is a step that you have to take before you begin to act. And that is, you're going to have to think about, am I acting the right way? That's the first step you're going to have to have. You're going to have to have some self-examination. Mr. Jax was praying for our service that we would tune our thoughts. But what we've got to do before we do that is to tune our thoughts into our thoughts. You almost have to step back and begin thinking, you know, what have I been thinking about lately? What have I been mulling over in my mind? And we can do that. God's given us the ability to do that. Well, we kind of take it a step farther back and really begin thinking, what have I been thinking about? What have I been focusing on? And then we turn our feet to your testimonies. There is a ton of practical application here. When you go to the Word every morning, and hopefully you're in the Word every day, when you get into the Word, a great practice is to begin by praying, God, we saw this earlier in Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. But then stopping right there and going, what have been my attitudes lately? Have I been worried about the future? Have I been a little discouraged? Have I been apathetic to God's word? Have I been idolatrous with my relationships? Have I been lusting after the things of the world, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life? What has kind of been my thoughts lately? Have they been thoughts that have been honoring God? Have they been prideful thoughts? Have they been humble thoughts? Have they been self-righteous thoughts? How have I been relating to my wife? Have I been getting angry with my kids lately? And you begin kind of mulling over some of these things to kind of set the tone of this is where I am. And then you're going over here to Scripture and saying, now your testimonies, claim your promises, Lord, make your testimonies, your promises true so that they shed light on my situation right here. This is just basic counseling. If you read um, David Pallison's book, he's got a great book called Speaking the Truth in Love. And he talks about counseling in there. And one of the things he says is counseling is essentially helping a person to see where they are in life and then where God's promises fulfill those needs. 
those pains, those difficulties that they're going through. And you can basically self-counsel here where you're going to Scripture every day and you've got saying, God, I'm thinking on my ways. And then when you show me your truth, give me the grace to turn to your testimonies. Give me your grace to follow you wholeheartedly. When I think on my ways, I turn your fate to your testimonies. And he follows that up in 60. Look at that, Look with me in 60. I hasten and do not delay. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, Mama always said, delayed obedience is no obedience. And that got stuck pretty soon. Early on in life, that got kind of crammed in there. Delayed obedience is no obedience. So when you are thinking on your ways and you say, hey, I'm over here. I've got a bad attitude. God's word says whatever it is about this bad attitude. What are you going to do? Well, hopefully, according to scripture, you're going to hasten. It's going to be quick. It's going to be fast. You're going to turn. You're going to move toward God. And if you don't, no, nothing's really working there. You're just kind of, you may have pain of mind, but you don't have a conviction of conscience. You don't have a conviction of heart. You see in 59, when I think on my ways, I turn your feet to your testimonies. Oftentimes what we want to do is we're thinking, okay, if I can, if I can follow God, then my thoughts are going to be right. I'm going to have these emotions. I'm going to have these desires. I'm going to have a warmth of heart. But what we've got to do first is, whether or not we have the feeling or not, let the word penetrate our hearts, bring us to conviction and repentance, begin following God, and then you begin to see the uh, exaltation, which we'll get to down to verse 64, that comes up from a person who's hastening and not delaying to keep God's commandments. Let's go to Genesis 19. Here's a good practical example of someone who hastened to follow God's commandments. And what we're talking about, God's commandments, is just His Word. Genesis 19. Look with me at verse 15. story here is of Lot, and he's in Sodom. Preceding verses in this chapter, Abraham's interceding for Sodom. You see, our in verse in chapter eighteen, you see Abraham interceding for Sodom. He's he's asking God, God, if there's this many, will you save it? If there's that many, save it. We know that story. And uh, the Lord sends God sends some angels into Sodom. Picking up in verse fifteen of chapter nineteen, as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, "Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city." But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him, set him outside the city. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't get this kind of patsy fingers seized where you just kind of grab him by the hand and you lead him quietly out. I get this rough treatment kind of feel where he's grabbing him by the arm and he's dragging him out of the city. His feet are kind of flailing. He's trying to get his feet underneath him and he's hauling him out of here out of mercy that if he doesn't get out of the city quick, he's going to be destroyed. 17, and as they brought him out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, oh, no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. And you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills. Lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to. And it is a little one. Let me escape there. It is not a little one. 
is it not a little one and my life will be saved? 21. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor. 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back. She lingered and she became a pillar of salt. Now, let's go back to Psalm 119. I think most of us are familiar with the the Latin term carpe diem. Seize the day. If there is an issue, if there is sin in your life, and God has made it known to your heart, and it can be a, a multitude of different things, whatever that sin is. If you're struggling with pornography, if you've got lust in your heart, if you're working on anxiety, if you've got fear, if you've got worry, if you're discouraged, whatever it is, if you've got, these, if you've got sin in your heart, and God reveals that to you from His Word. What the question is, what are you going to do? And if you do not hasten immediately, you may or may not, by God's mercy, be turned over. We, we see in Scripture that uh, those didn't follow God, so God gave them over to their Romans one to the to the lusts of their to the darkness of their mind. They gave them over to their own depravity. We see where Paul talks about we just gave them over to the tempter, hoping that that would bring them out. Don't test God's mercy. If you've got sin in your life, today is the day you go to work on it, not tomorrow. You don't say, well, hey, you know, tomorrow I'm going, to begin, I'm going to begin working on this issue. No, 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 no. Today, right now, tomorrow, there's no promises of tomorrow. We don't know if tomorrow is going to be there. We're not to worry about tomorrow if we do not know what a day may bring forth. Today is the day. If you've got sin, get it out now. Begin working on it now. God may be in His mercy going to come back tomorrow. And is that how you want to go to Him? God, I was one day away. I was this close to begin working on that which you've been showing me for weeks. I don't, I don't know about you, but that's, I've got plenty of stuff that I'm going to be ashamed of before God. I don't want to go to Him going, I was this close to working on that big issue. Today is the day. May you give Him, give him His due. Give Him your all hasten, do not delay to keep his commandments. Now, we are in the world and not of the world. Verse 61. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. Go to me to uh, Psalm 119, verse 83. Just a page over there. Verse 83. Here's a pretty good visual description of what this looks like. There are many different Bible scholars who have different opinions on whether or not the psalmist here was actually tied up. But most agree that this is not talking about an actual physical bonds being placed on the individual. But it's more like 83. Verse 83. For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgot your statutes. In a smokehouse, if you've got a wineskin that's empty, automatically what it does is just because of the amount of heat in that room, it just begins to shrivel up. And, and basically submit itself to the circumstances around it. We're in the world. And as we are seeking by God's grace to conform ourselves to the image of his son, to pursue sanctification, 
there's going to be a great amount of difficulty because the wicked, the temptation, the snares of the world are all around us like smoke is around a wineskin. And you can sometimes barely clear out the fog to see what God's promises are saying, what God's truth is saying. It can be very difficult to see how to get out. It can be very difficult to overcome these temptations. That's where you've got to go back to the beginning of this whole passage. Is the Lord your portion? Or is if I have a little bit of this, if I had a little bit of this, this will help me to get out. Are you giving in to some of those temptations? Or are you claiming him as your complete portion? Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. Again, I do not forget what I desire, which is... You're my portion, so everything that you say according to Scripture, I desire to know. 62. We're still in the midst of this smoke. We're still in the midst of the wicked attacking him. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. We're going to have a whole other sermon on just this verse alone as well. At midnight is when the enemies like to attack. They normally don't attack in broad daylight. They like to sneak up at night. The robbers like to come at night and Rob the house. You've got to be careful about what goes on at night. Tuesday night Bible study. We talked about the foolish virgins there in the in the Gospels, where we have these five wise virgins and five foolish virgins, and the foolish didn't have the oil when at midnight, at the unexpected time, the bridegroom arrived, and the wise virgins they had their oil ready to go for the celebration of what was going to happen, and it's a picture of the fact that you never know when. Christ is going to return. And we never know when the enemy is going to attack, but oftentimes it's going to be at night. At midnight I rise to praise you. The other word you could use there that is often in some translations is, at midnight I rise to thank you because of your righteous rules. Now, there are many things we can talk about. One I think we should point out is this. Midnight. What's going on at midnight? Well, not much is going on good at midnight. But in your house, nobody else is seeing you at midnight. You're all by yourself. You may be with your family, but they're probably going to be asleep. And when the enemy comes, what is your response when nobody else sees you? I was talking to Justin right before the sermon here about what the Lord's showing me in Ephesians 6. Let's go over to Ephesians 6. I want you to see this verse. First part of Ephesians 6, 1 through 9, we see um, Paul instructing the Ephesians on essentially relationships. We see children, we see parents, and we see slaves and masters. And how you're supposed to conduct yourself in whatever role that you're in. If you're in the slave situation, if you're in a parent situation, children, etc. But you see there in verse 5, he's instructing slaves. And I think you could probably make the pretty strong point that every single one of us are always in, one, in, in many different roles. I'm not a child anymore, but I am a child of Mike Carnett. So in some regards, there's still some of that role. But I'm also in the parent role for Chandler Carnett. But I'm not a slave because... No one, uh, I'm not really, I don't really have a, a boss as much as uh, there may be people that are working under me. And yet, I'm a slave to righteousness. So we're always in this realm, these different modes. And when you are in your relationships, when you're in life, you've got to quickly switch back and forth. Zach is going to go to work where he's a son of Michael Clark, but he's also a 
employee of Michael Clark, and yet he comes home and now he's a husband. And you've got to make those quick switches back and forth of what role am I in right now? Well, look with me in verse 5. And I'm a slave to righteousness, so this does apply to me, not just as an employee or an employer. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. That's, that's, that's directly to us, regardless of if you are a slave or an employee or an employer, or wherever you are in, your, in the roles of relationships, we're to do everything as re- regardless of what people see. If no one's around you, Psalm 119, verse 62, at midnight, what do you do? If no one's going to watch you, how do you respond? That's a good test of how strong your spiritual faith is. Do you go to prayer or do you worry? Do you kind of block it out, start up a movie or something to kind of get your mind on other things? Or do you begin thanking Him? Go with me to Psalm 103. I was reading this this morning. If you're, I think you could make a pretty strong case here in 62 that the psalmist is struggling with some fear. Because the, in the preceding verse, 61, the cords or the smoke, whatever you want to use as your symbolism there, of the wicked are all around him. They're pressuring him. They're putting some intense negative pressure on him to conform to the image of the world rather than the image of Christ. What is, this, what is the thing that can drive out fear? It's thanks. When you're having a fear about the future, when you're having a fear about a relationship, when you're having a fear about a son or a daughter, when you're having a fear about whatever it is, if you can begin to thank God, that fear will oftentimes just melt away in the, as you get the right perspective. In Psalm 103, it's got to be one of the better examples of that. Let's look at um, verse 7. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, neither nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Verse 10 right there, you can hang your hat on it and just go to town on that verse. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. There is nothing else in life that can be as possible that, is, that could possibly be as bad as if God begins to deal with you the way you deserve it, and yet He doesn't. His gospel, this good grace, this goodness of Him, of His, just overflows onto us. Eleven, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. Verse 15, as for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone in its place, knows it no more. But in comparison, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. And the entire scriptures have these promises over and over and over. That if you can get your mind on and begin thanking him for these things, the fear can just melt away. Back to Psalm 119. Thankfulness drives out fear in the midst of the night, in the midst of the difficulties, whenever it might be. Now, let's begin our closing down of this here. 63, we're still kind of in this portion of 61 and 62. 63 is just the tail end of that. I am a companion. So instead of being a companion, 
of the wicked. He is a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. Charles Spurgeon says, those who fear God love those who fear him. Who do you love to be around? Is it movies? Is it Hollywood? I'm not going to sit here and uh, I'm not on a crusade to blast against movies. I am on a crusade against the blast against, to blast against hearts that are not passionately pursuing Christ. And that's my heart. And that's oftentimes all of our hearts where we go through these times where we're just not pursuing God and we begin to place our companionship on other things. The movies aren't the bad, necessarily the bad thing, but it's the symptom of a bad thing, which is the heart that desperately needs to come back to the gospel. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. Do you love the people that God loves? Or are they difficult to get along with? They're not as fun. They're not the people you really want to spend an hour with and chat over. It makes you uncomfortable because this person's talking about God and you're just thinking, would you just be quiet already? What about the sports? What about the latest this? What about the latest that? You're not really focused on God. And oftentimes your companions can be the direct result or can be the direct barometer of really where your heart is. That's why children, young people, that's why the parents always get on us of going, who are your companions? Paul says in Scripture, bad company corrupts good morals. So we're always thinking, well, hey, he's just a good friend of mine. Dad's going, don't hang around with him. Don't hang around with him because he's a companion that is not going to lead you in God's ways. He's not a companion that's going to help you fear the Lord. Wrapping up here, 64. Last verse. Goes back to 57. 57 is the beginning. 64 is the bookend. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Remember, we're intimately acquainted with this individual who's pursuing Christ and he's in his prayer closet. We're a fly on the wall and he's pleading with the Lord, Lord, you are my portion. And I promise to keep your words. And then he goes through the difficulties he's having. But as he gets to the end of here, after he's thanked the Lord, after he's meditated on his precepts, after he's claimed the promises, after he's thought on his ways and turned his feet to, his, to God's ways. He's hastened and not delayed. He's obeyed. He's realizing the fullness that this earth, that this earth has of God's mercy. You can, you can uh, translate steadfast love as oftentimes translated mercy. The earth, O Lord, is full of your abundant mercy. No matter where you turn, you see God's mercy. And if you have this desire to have Him as your portion your all portion, then you're going to want to intimately be acquainted with his words. So that's why the psalmist says, teach me your statutes. Another quote here by G.S. Bose talking about this exact passage of Scripture and God's mercy. Who could enter a sanctuary, search conscience, look up to heaven, pray or sacrifice, call upon God, or think of the tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God, if there were no mercy. Yes, mercy is in the air which we breathe, the daily light which shines upon us, the gracious rain of God's inheritance. Do we ever do we think about that? We had a lot of rain this past week. Are we thinking every single one of drop, those drops are God's mercy? Because He could stop it. And there's many instances in Scripture where He did stop it. And people are beginning to plead, God, give me mercy. Have some rain. 
gracious reign of God's inheritance. It is, it is the public spring for all the thirsty, the common hospital for all the needy. All the streets of the church are paved with these stones. It is mercy that takes us out of the womb, feeds us in the days of our pilgrimage, furnishes us with spiritual provisions, closes our eyes in peace, and translates us to a secure resting place. It is the first petitioner's suit and the first believer's article, the contemplation of Enoch, the confidence of Abraham, the burden of the prophetic psalm, songs, the glory of all the apostles, the plea of the penitent, the ecstasies of the reconciled, the believer's hosanna, the angel's hallelujah. Ordinances, oracles, altars, pulpits, the gates of the grave and the gates of heaven do all depend upon mercy. It is the lodestar of the wondering, the ransom of the captive, the antidote of the tempted, the prophet of the living, and the effectual comfort of the dying. There would not be one regenerate saint upon earth, nor one glorified saint in heaven, if it were not for mercy, G.S. Bose. Do we see that? Uh, sometimes we struggle to see God's mercy in such abundant form. And I, I know that in my own life, when I'm struggling to see God's mercy in such abundant form, it's probably because I'm thinking on my own way. I'm not even thinking on my own ways. I'm just thinking. And my thoughts, I've got to be careful, my thoughts are not going to be God's thoughts. My ways are not going to be His ways. My, the inclinations of my heart are going to be desperately wicked, as Jeremiah talks about. And when we want to see God's mercies as they are, we've got to go back to thinking about what I'm thinking about so that I can turn in humble repentance to God quickly, automatically, hastening to Him so that He might be glorified and I might be able to have that oneness of relationship with Him. If you're struggling in the Word, if you're struggling in memorization of Scripture, if you're struggling in your prayer life, if you're struggling with relationships that are around you and seeing God working through those, you might begin to think, have I replaced God with something else? Is there idolatry in the camp? Am I lusting after other things? What is it that is keeping me from this oneness with God where I can see His mercies, where I can love Him with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength? It may be because we need to again turn again, turn again to Him from our ways. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful to you for the gospel. Because without it, Lord, there's, there's no mercy. If we didn't have your son, who you sent to die on our behalf, then we, we would, by every, every single second, Lord, we would see the wrath that we so richly deserve. And yet you so lovingly do not give us. Father, you are our all in all. And we can say that in our mind. But I know, Lord, that that rarely translates to our actions, to the feelings of our hearts, to how we respond to the world that's around us. So I would simply pray, Lord, that you would open the eyes of everyone's heart in here. Pray especially, Lord, that you would open the eyes of my heart. That I would really see in perspective you as my everything. My inheritance, my portion. There is nothing outside of you that can grant me the pleasure 
that is afforded to me when you are rightfully on your throne, the throne of my heart. I pray and ask, Lord, that we would not grow cold and apathetic to your word. And if we are growing cold and apathetic, that we would think about these things and we would turn our feet to your word. We would hasten back to your word regardless of feeling, but knowing that's where the truth is. That's where life is. That's where the the warmth of the gospel can begin to warm up a cold heart again. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to have been in your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the truth that is there. And I pray, Lord, that we would carry that with us throughout the day. Thank you and praise you, Lord, for the opportunity to be here amid saints. And I would plead, Lord, that we would pursue you wholeheartedly. And we would pursue sin, the ridding of sin from our life, as passionately as we try to often get into sin. We can quickly get in, and I pray that you would give us the grace to get out even quicker. Thank you and praise you for this day, Lord. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.